Well, happy Easter Sunday to you. If you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Exodus. We are uh, right in the middle of a series, and I realize that in the wisdom uh, of God's sovereignty, or maybe just in my own uh, stupidity, on Easter Resurrection Sunday, uh, we're going to talk about the angel of death, okay? Uh, not something that you would probably uh, just pick uh, by, by happenstance, but that's where we are. If, uh, if you haven't been with us over the past couple of months, uh, we have been walking through systematically through the book of Exodus. And uh, we approach a text today, and it, it falls on Easter. I kind of slow rolled uh, the plagues out, uh, if you will, over the past few weeks to kind of get to this point. Because at a surface level, it seems like uh, that this would not go with a Resurrection Sunday in particular the hope of the good news and what that means. However, there are so many different parallels that exist here in this moment, uh, in this story and in this narrative, in this actual events that takes place. And it got me thinking this past week when uh, the Hebrews were preparing for this angel uh, of death who's known as the destroyer to come. It got me thinking a lot about unwanted house guests and, and experiences that often comes. And, and about 15 years ago, give or take, I was sent out with a group of men and we traveled to Kampala, Uganda. And the purpose of that trip was our church at the time was exploring, partnering and adopting several orphanages that existed there on Lake Victoria. And about 15 to 16 years ago, if you can remember, we had sort of gotten involved in uh, numerous wars in the Middle East. There was this undercurrent of tension that existed oftentimes that was unspoken, but it was felt between Christians in particular, but also with Muslims. And so when we went into Kampala, we had no idea at the time, or I didn't, about how heavily influenced Kampala was by Islam. And there were mosques everywhere, and our host took us around, and we got to go in some of these mosques, and there were throwaway comments that were made, yeah, we, we don't go to this side of town on, on this time of night, and we're going to sort of stay over here. Well, we get back to our, our, our house. I called it a compound because the way that many of these houses existed in Kampala, they had these like 10-foot cement fences all the way around the house like a big fort. And so we get there, and, and really everything was fine the first several days that we were there. And then on the third night, my roommate, a guy by the name of Brian, woke me up in the middle of a sleep. And he said, Drew, Drew, do you hear that? Do you hear that? And I sort of set up and began to hear this noise going, whoosh, 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 whoosh. And I whispered to him, I said, Brian, what is that? He said, I don't know. And I said, well, let's get up and look. And so we eked up from our bed and we walked to the window in the bedroom and we lowered the blind just in time to see this shirtless African man with a machete opening up the front door gate into our compound. Now, when Brian and I saw this, he, not me, lost his ever-loving mind. <laughs> and he began to say things like, they've come for us. They have come for us. They have machetes and hatchets in hand. We have got to wake up Ruth, who was who we were staying with. We've got to tell Ruth, they have come to get the Americans. We're done for. 
And as he began to talk, he began to speak louder. And he began to become more panicked and, and frantic. And so all of a sudden, Ruth comes around the corner. We woke up our other team that was there. And Ruth comes around the corner. And Brian's like, Ruth, they are in the compound. They've come to get us. They know that we're here. They have a machete in their hand. And Ruth just sort of looks back at us and she begins to smile and her husband begins to smile and then they begin to laugh and they begin to laugh uncontrollably and, and even hysterically. And they said, there are no extremists coming to get you guys. They don't even know you're here. That man is the lawn man and he's chasing a dog around the front yard and trying to get him. <laughs> you're not gonna die tonight. Maybe tomorrow, but not tonight. You know, it's one thing to have an unwanted guest and visitor in your home in the middle of the night. I don't care if you're in Uganda or you're in Burleson, Texas or Alito, but if you open up your blind and you see a shirtless man with a machete on your property, you would probably lose your ever-loving mind as well. And it's one thing to experience something like that. It is quite another to experience an unwanted guest or a visitor in the context of Exodus 12, where God sends his final judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And this time something changes in the narrative because this time we see that the Israelites are not immune from the judgment that God is bringing about. So we're going to walk through chapter 12 this morning. And so if you would, if you have your copy of God's word, follow along with me. If not, it'll be up on the screens. And let's pick up in verse 3, where the word says this. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You, may, you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall then kill their lambs at twilight. Now, the context of chapter 12 is we have just come off on the heels of the ninth plague, and it was a plague of utter darkness for three days. If you remember from last week, it said it was so dark that they couldn't move for three days in their homes and, and outside. There was no mobility. It was complete and utter isolation in this moment. And each time we see these plagues, they progress and they get worse and worse. And we think that it couldn't get any worse than it actually is. And then each time God begins to up the ante just a little bit more. Because each time Pharaoh's response to each plague is it says either Pharaoh hardens his heart or it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the point of that is, is not so much a question about sovereignty and responsibility. It's really just a question of God demonstrating or a statement of God just demonstrating his utter power over the life of Pharaoh and over all of the people in his land. And so out of darkness, God begins to speak again to Moses and Aaron. And he says, I want you to get ready for something that I'm about to do that I'm about to issue the ultimate judgment on Pharaoh's life and on his family and on his kingdom. And so you're going to go and you're going to tell all of the people of Israel that on the 10th day, they're going to go find a, a yearling. They're going to go find an animal in which they are to sacrifice a lamb. And, and this lamb has, has a couple of requirements from it. Number one, uh, it's got to be a year old. Number two, it has got to be perfect. 
It's got to be spotless in every which way. It's got to be pure and, and holy. And, and this thing cannot be defiled in any way. There, there is no imperfection on whichever one that you choose. Physically, it has to look a certain way. And it's going to serve as a sacrifice for sin, which perfection is the only acceptable sacrifice for God. And so you're going to take it on the fourth day and you're going to take its life. What Old Testament scholars say what would happen in this moment is they were commanded to take the lamb. They would bring the lamb inside their house and they would feed the lamb and they would uh, provide a place for it to sleep. And, and they would intentionally teach their children and the head of the household would say, we're going to care for this lamb for four days and, and it's going to become a part of our family and we're going to become a part of its family. And there's this attachment that, that exists there in that moment. It's similar to, to when you have pets at your house and you become attached to that pet. And you may have that pet for 10 years or, or you may have it for five years, but you grow an affinity towards one another and there's loyalty there. There's provision that's there. He or they become a part of you and you become a part of them. And so the intention here was the rabbis would tell them, you, you take the yearling and you bring it in and you allow your children to, to care for it and to feed it and to provide for it. And the reason why this is significant was because God in his wisdom was wanting the Hebrews and this time of Passover to grow attached to their animals. Why? Because he wanted it to sting whenever they sacrificed them and took their life. He wanted it to, to hurt a little bit and he wanted it to feel like, hey, this, this isn't right or we've grown attachment. Some wrong has, has been committed almost. This, this sense of, of feeling that exists there in that moment. Then notice in verse seven, it keeps going and it says, and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel and the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire, but you're going to do it with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs and they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or, or boiled in water, but roast it, its head and its leg and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Eat everything. Anything that does remain until morning, you shall burn it. In this manner, you shall eat it. Listen to the posture that the Hebrews are commanded to eat it. You are to eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. God tells them to eat it in haste, to eat it in a, in a ready position. Because at any moment, what God is saying in that moment is that I could tell you and ask you, now is the time, now is the moment I'm going to deliver you and you must be ready to flee from this man. And so you, you eat it with that sense, but notice in verse eight, he says, uh, take the unleavened bread and take the bitter herbs. Well, what are these for and why would he do this? Well, the bitter herbs are, are the most logical to understand because it was meant when they tasted the bitter herbs, it was to remind them of the bitterness and the, and the work that Pharaoh made them do as, he, as they built in brick and in mortar, how Pharaoh made their lives utterly bitter and contemptible towards him. Living as slaves. And so you bite the herb and it elicits this bitter sensation in your mouth and it's to remind you of all that you have done. But the unleavened bread was simply to remind them that they should be ready to leave at a moment's notice. And I want you to notice as the text continues on, for I will, in verse 12, I will pass by the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute my judgments. For I am the Lord, 
the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses of where you are. And when I see the blood, my angel will pass over and no plague will befall you. Nothing will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You see, God was requiring something of the Israelites in this moment. He was requiring something of even the Egyptians, who some of them who were beginning to believe and understand and to see these miraculous things. And I think it speaks to us a a powerful truth about your life and about my life today here here on Easter Sunday. You see, whatever it is that God would require of you, he will always give you a provision to meet that requirement. In other words, God provides what God requires. And when he asks you to do something, he's always going to equip you or to bring somebody alongside you to help you accomplish the thing that he wants you to accomplish. He's going to put you in situations that perhaps make you feel uncomfortable or you think, how am I going to do this and and how can I succeed at this? But he always gives provision to the thing that he requires. And you know what he requires of his people? That we would be a people that walk in faithfulness and obedience to him. And because he has required that, he has given us the provision of that through his son Jesus and through his spirit to equip us and to enable us, to encourage us, to challenge us, and to move us. But you see, throughout the Old Testament and on into the New, what we see when we study theology from a broader perspective is what we see are these movements that begin to exist and how God is speaking to his people through the sacrifice of a lamb or even a ram. And he does that in a couple of ways. You remember the story in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis where God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And at the very moment that he was about to follow and to act upon this, God provides a ram in the thicket. He provides a substitution in Isaac's place. And we fast forward to Exodus 12 and we see this moment where God says, as a family, you're gonna sacrifice this lamb, take it. And then four days later, you're gonna slit his throat on the altar as an act of worship to me, a brutal thing. But I'm gonna make provision for, for your family. Later on in the Old Testament is what's known as the Day of Atonement and where the priests and the rabbis would come and they would offer one sacrifice for the entire sins of all the nation of Israel. And so you see the progression. You see Abraham and Isaac. You see the families that exist in Exodus 12. You see the Day of Atonement for all of the nations, all leading to this one phrase that John the Baptist utters in 1 John 1:29, where John says this, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just enough for the individual, not just enough for the family, not just enough for the nation, but rather the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What that teaches us is something I think perhaps is quite profound, and it's this simple idea that when we see this movement that exists within Exodus 12 about these families taking and slaying these animals and these lambs, what it was ultimately pointing to all the way back in Exodus 12, it was pointing to the fact that someday there would be another lamb that was slain. It was pointing to a, to a greater tragedy, if you will, or an even greater triumph, even in that moment at his resurrection. And it's what Paul means when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. 
He is the one that stood in our place and, and on our behalf. We notice in the beginning of this movement that this lamb had to be physically flawless. But I want to say this to you. While Jesus wasn't considered physically flawless, he, he was hard to look at. He was a man of sorrows. Yet even in the midst of that, he was morally flawless. And what we mean by that and understand by that is by virtue of his virgin birth, his nature, it was free from the corruption of what we understand as original sin. And the Bible says he did not commit any transgressions. And it says no deceit was found in him according to 1 Peter. The author of Hebrews goes on and he says, he was tempted in every way just as we were, yet he, Jesus, he was without sin. He was morally perfect, but yet he died as an innocent victim while he offered himself to the unblemished God. And so this scene in Exodus 12, but I want you to notice in verse 13 where he speaks about the blood. The word blood throughout the Old and New Testament is one of the more theologically worded uh, uh, words that are there that are rich and, and so much meaning. Why would, why would God require them to use blood? Why not just take some paint or make a marking and scrape it into the wood? Why would it be necessary for them to sprinkle blood on the doorpost? What it signifies in that moment that the Israelites would have understood is that they had a substitute. They had a lamb that died in their place. Something in that moment gave its life so that the Israelites could live. And so when that angel of death, he comes into those towns and he goes all the way across and the Israelites are not spared in this moment from judgment and he sees the blood that's been scraped across and written across the doorpost, he knows that they are his and he is theirs. That a sacrifice had been made and so death passes over them in that moment because they were under the blood. Paul says elsewhere, he says, in him, in Christ, our sacrificial lamb, we have redemption through his blood, and we have the forgiveness of sins. The writer of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But if we keep reading in the text and we get to verse 15, he says, on the first day of this process, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. You see, Jewish scholars have long held and believed, and even Old Testament scholars have long held and believed that yeast, oftentimes the unleavened bread or the, the leavened bread that accompanies the yeast that is there, the yeast in the bread represents the corrupting power of sin in our life. If you've ever made bread, you know that you have to add yeast. And the yeast forms this chemical reaction in the, in the sugar and, and in the bread, and it releases carbon dioxide. And so the bread begins to grow, and there's fast-growing yeast, and there's slow-growing yeast. But what happens is that yeast begins to permeate every aspect of that wheat and that flour as it begins to interact with that sugar. So the bread then begins to rise. And so when we see in Scripture and examine, when he says use the unleavened and, and not the leaven, when you are to remove the, the yeast out of those things, it is to be a reminder about the tangled mess and how sin can permeate every aspect of our lives. And that we ought to be careful about unpacking that and making sure that we're dealing honestly and, and thoroughly with our God. You see, what God was doing in this moment when he talks about leavened and unleavened, 
And as he's preparing to deliver the Hebrews out of the hands of the Egyptians, note this truth and don't ever forget it. That what God was doing in this moment was not just trying to get his people out of Egypt, but rather he was trying to get Egypt out of his people. Because they had become so entangled in this moment uh, with, the, with the culture of it. And we're going to see later on in Exodus that as they, God frees them, they bring some of the little idols with them out of Pharaoh's kingdom. And so what God is doing is he's saying, listen, you're going to go through all of these details, as ritualistic as they sound, because what I'm most concerned with is, yes, I love a concern. I am concerned with your situation. I am concerned about the predicament that you're in, that you're in slavery. You're being held hostage by this dictator and this evil man. But most importantly, even beyond that, even though I care deeply about your circumstances, I care more about the condition of your heart. And so I'm trying to not just get you out of the land of Egypt, but I'm trying to get Egypt out of your heart and out of his people. And to say it a different way, God wants to do something more than get you out of your tangled mess. He wants to get the tangled mess out of you. The feelings of insecurity and doubt. The sin that that may be in your life that nobody knows about but you. The condition of your heart, how you view people that maybe no one knows but you and the Lord. Our prejudices and and our misgivings about this world and and this culture, how, how we seek to make this world our home rather than living for the next one. God cares that you're held captive in Egypt and he's gonna deliver you and he wants to deliver you, but what God is most concerned about is getting those things out of your heart and plucking those things out of your life so that you can follow him more faithfully. Your doubts and your griefs, there are things in our, our life like these Hebrews do that we tolerate sins. There's grudges that we nurse, do we not? Towards people that maybe have wronged us or, or hurt us. We take things from people that don't belong to us. We, we worry, we have impatience. And that's our Egypt in those moments. And God wants to deliver us from those things. He wants to pull those out of our hearts. So what the Bible tells us is that God brings the dead man and he makes him alive, new. And he gives him the power and the authority because of his spirit to to be able to work at it, to be able to redeem those things and to change those things. God is constantly doing this with his people over and over and over and over again. Verse 23, the text says, for the Lord will pass through and he'll strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood... The Lord will pass over the door and he will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. It's a promise that God said, you do what I say and walk in faithfulness and I'll give you that which I require of you. But here's where I think is of significance in this moment in this 10th plague. Because you see, up until this moment, all nine plagues prior to this, God treated the Israelites completely different than he treated the Egyptians. He provided a place of refuge in those moments in the land of Goshen. You remember that? And we talked about that earlier. And he, and he didn't afflict them in those moments. And the things that happened to the Egyptians, God didn't do to the Israelites. But yet, when we get to the 10th plague, something changes and something is different. And God afflicts them. And they are under the same just punishment that the Hebrews were or that the Egyptians were in that moment. Why? Well, Exodus 5.1, they didn't listen to the words of the prophets. 
They didn't fully obey what, what God had told them to do. They became ensnared in the things of this world and in the culture and in the gods that existed in that moment. And so the penalty for, for their sin is the same penalty that's due for us today. The penalty is a capital offense. And the Bible says it's death is the consequence. This is the wages of it. It's death. And so the Israelites would experience that death had it not been for the provision that God provided. So verse 29 comes in and it says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. I find that striking. The fact that the most powerful man or the lowest man the harshest and most severe criminal was under the same judgment that the most powerful man in the world was. From the highest places to the lowest places, he strikes them down. And it says in verse 30, Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house when someone was not dead. What I find interesting about that is that the plague right before this in darkness is this place of utter isolation. Not even being able to hold your hand up and seeing your hand in front of your face because of the darkness that exists there in this moment. It was so dark, it says they didn't even move. There, there was no talking, there was no coming and going. It was utter silence for three days in a place of darkness, whether you were inside or out. And then the 10th plague comes in. And as these parents begin to realize that their firstborn is now gone, you contrast the silence and the devastation now with the, the weeping and the wailing and the screams that must have existed, the why and, and, and the punishment that existed there in this moment that they feel in that moment going from silence and solitude and isolation and I'm alone to now God making them in this moment feel quite more alone and doing what he said he would do and taking the life of the firstborn. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Can you think about that for just a moment? I know that COVID over the past two years is we, most all of us here in this room know someone, whether it be family or friends that passed away because of it or complications because of it. But it didn't affect everybody. Not every household lost someone. But we can feel the devastation and we can feel that tension that existed over the past couple of years. Well, here in this moment, as they look out into all the land, can you imagine the weight and the gravity that exists there in that moment where not one single household was left untouched? Verse 31 says, then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night. And he says, up, go out from among the people. Both you and the people of Israel go and serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, take your herds, take everything as you have said and be gone. But bless me also. Pharaoh still at this point doesn't quite understand what is happening and going on. He commands them to leave and he wanted to be blessed. And here's what I think Pharaoh's response is, is instructive for us today. You see, Pharaoh in this moment asked for the blessing, but he didn't want any of the liability. 
And I think that Pharaoh's attitude is indicative oftentimes of me, I'll start with myself first and then maybe go to Carvin, that I want the blessings of God without the liability and the, and the repentance that exists and the, and the obedience that is required and do this. God, would you bless me, but I'm gonna go about doing things my own way. God, would you, would you, would you, let me have favor with you, but, but I'm still gonna deal with this in my own way and I'm still gonna make these decisions under my own wisdom. We want the blessings of God without the liability that comes with this, the faithfulness and the obedience that is required by him to follow him and to know him and to trust him. Pharaoh says, bless me. Verse 35, and the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. For they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they had let them have what they asked, and they plundered the Egyptians. Fulfilling a promise God had made 400 some odd years ago that they, when they were freed out of the hand of Pharaoh, that God would allow them to plunder the land and to take back what was theirs. And so it says in verse 40, 430 years passed from that time until he delivered them in this moment. Verse 42, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout all their generations. And I love how 50 and 51 end. He says, in the people of Israel, they did just as the Lord commanded. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. I think one of the things that we have to be reminded of as we finally come out of these judgments and we see God execute his promise of faithfulness in the life of his people, it's this question that we've seen over and over and over again for the past eight or nine weeks is why would God deliver them in this way and for what purpose? And that purpose that he delivered them is the same purpose that he has for your life today on Easter Sunday that you would go and you would serve him. That you'd give your life for the sake of the gospel, to go and tell people that are far from him about what Christ has done for you and for me and the good news of Jesus. And listen, it's not good news if it doesn't get there in time. 12th largest city in all the country right here in Fort Worth, Texas. Thousands upon thousands are still moving here to this great city that don't know him and that are far from him. So we have a mission. We have a call to live on mission with him in our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our workplaces to see those who are far from him come to know him. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us the gift of salvation through your son, Jesus. We pray, Father, that as a people, we would walk in obedience as we celebrate your resurrection today and draw special attention to it. We say thank you that you have redeemed us and you have called us to be by your side. So Father, I ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would go and proclaim the worthiness of your son, Jesus, as we seek to glorify you, our heavenly Father. And for we ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus, the Bible says to, to know him, you just simply call upon his name and you'll be saved. To confess your sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And so here's that, how that kind of looks. If you're here today and don't know him or you don't know if you have a relationship with him, you, you just call upon his name and you say, Jesus, would you save me? Would you save me? 
forgive me of my sins? Would you help me? I think oftentimes we make it far too complicated and scripturally it's really just as simple as that. We'll figure out the rest later. And so if you don't know him or you're unsure about that, why not today in this moment, just call upon his name and just say, God, would would you save me? Would you save me from my sins? I'm gonna be down front along with some of our staff. We'll be down here worshiping, responding. If If you do that, if you call upon his name, it's important that you tell somebody so that we can walk with you through the scriptures and show you what that means and then, and then help lead you down a, a path of, of faithfulness and obedience to be discipled in, in the context of the local church because the best place to be discipled is in the local church. It's God's plan for you to grow in maturity and faith and wisdom here in the local church. And so I'm gonna invite you to stand as I pray. And as we do that, our team will continue to lead us. And so you stand. Father in heaven, would you inhabit our praises in this moment, in these next few minutes. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.